Hello, and welcome to Anime Audio Commentary. After my April Fool's Day prank yesterday, I thought it would be nice to produce an extra long episode where I comment over something I, and hopefully you as well, will enjoy. Without further ado, I'll be commenting on Lupin III, The Castle of Cagliostro. If you'd like to watch along, start watching now. So we start things off in media res. Lupin and his uh, partner in crime, Jigen, have just ripped off a large amount of money from a casino. Now, I have to say, I really love this film, and I've actually been getting into Lupin the Third more and more lately. I've been watching um, the old anime Lupin the Third Part 2 from, uh, oh gosh, I think it was the 70s, late 70s, and, uh, it's been a lot of fun. You know, this film was my first introduction to the character and all that stuff. And I have to say, this film doesn't really introduce all of the more fantastical elements that occasionally show up. Like, there's one episode where there was, like, an actual literal vampire. And, you know, Lupin and the gang just had to negotiate that. And then, uh... Man, like, there's just, like, a lot of, like, weird supernatural phenomenon that, like, nobody really points out, you know? It's almost like all the weird stuff is kind of uniform. Or, not uniform, but... Like, it happens so frequently that nobody feels the need to point it out anymore. I've heard Lupin III described as, like, a weird mix of... James Bond, Charlie's Angels, and Scooby-Doo. And I think that's a fairly apt comparison, you know? It's got... It's got this, like, this playful element to it, you know? It's just fun to watch. In a way that... I don't know, I think not a lot of things really are. Maybe it has to do with how old it is. You know, in a way... Like, the style of animation, I mean, obviously it's anime, but it sort of reminds me of, like, um... Like, old Tom and Jerry cartoons directed by Chuck Jones. Like, that, like, it almost reminds me of old Hanna-Barbera cartoons, like the original Scooby-Doo and Johnny Quest and stuff like that. I mean, this sort of stuff is outside of the purview of this podcast, where I talk about anime and only anime, but... Like... I don't know, there's sort of, like, um, this ancestral link in a sense of, like, you know, I guess when you get down to it, Hanna-Barbera and the studio behind Lupin Third, I believe TMS Entertainment is the studio, like, maybe peers is a strong word, but they were definitely doing their thing, you know, across the world at the same time. It's just, I think it's interesting. Because, like, it is undoubtedly anime, but it doesn't always feel like it, if that makes any sense. I guess part of that's due to, like, Lupin's globe-trotting nature. 
So, I mean, like, in uh, in the anime, the TV anime, there's episodes where he's all across the globe stealing stuff here, defrauding people there, you know, all the usual stuff. And I don't know, like, I feel like working on it would have been fun. That's the impression I get. Especially with, like, uh, the English dub cast, who I believe have been, like, the consistent cast throughout the entire history of Lupin. It just, uh... I think it adds to it when the people behind it seem to have been having fun. So here we have Lupin being his uh, typical self, you know, a master of disguise. Although I have to say, perhaps it's due to its place in uh, chronological time in terms of having been produced, but the way it's been played in the anime, Lupin's more of like the master of disguise in that he uses like rubber face masks and prosthetics and stuff like that. You know, it seemed like he was just wearing, like, a wig and glasses, and... I mean, if it's enough, it's enough, but... You know, looking back, I feel like a lot of, like, the campiness... ...is kind of toned down in this film. And that's not a bad thing, because some of the more fantastical elements are... ...I guess hard to swallow if you're not prepared for it. Like... One of the ongoing themes in the TV anime is that uh, Fujiko works with Lupin and betrays Lupin in about equal measures. You know, like, there, there are a whole bunch of episodes where the plot could be summarized as Fujiko has betrayed Lupin. And in terms of fantastical elements, there's one episode where the setup is basically Fujiko is getting married, so Lupin... Uh, is sitting on a rooftop with a rifle and shoots her. And, like, that's just how things start. I mean, like, obviously she's not dead, because Lupin wouldn't do that, but it's like, man, that's how we're starting things off? Alright. You know, something like that wouldn't gel in this movie, because, you know, we don't really know the characters, presumably. Or at least, I didn't really know the characters going into this film the first time. Now, after having talked all that stuff about this film toning down fantastical elements, we have this car chase. And I don't think I'm alone here when I say that this is probably one of the greatest car chase scenes ever. Uh, I believe John Lasseter, formerly of Pixar, is on record stating that he really, really likes this scene. And really this film as a whole. You know, I seem to recall that he's talked big about Studio Ghibli and their works before. Granted, this isn't a Studio Ghibli film, but it was uh, Hayao Miyazaki's first film as a director. So in a sense, it's like proto-Studio Ghibli. I mean, kind of. That might be a bit of a stretch. But I do believe in the Pixar film Cars, one of the cars is uh, like a yellow Fiat, like Lupin's car. And that's purely just because John Lasseter liked this film. I mean, 
that might be apocryphal, I might be making that up, but I do know that some elements of that are true. There definitely is a yellow Fiat, and John Lasseter definitely likes this film. You know, I don't think it's too much of a stretch. But, yeah, you know, uh, it, it would take a bolder man than I to drive my car like that down what is basically a sheer cliff. It should be very telling that this whole car chase business, shooting in a car, finding out it has armored tires, and then using an armor-piercing round to shoot it, you know, that all this stuff isn't really phasing Lupin or Jigen, should be very telling that they live storied lives. Man, Lupin's just not having a good day. Gets in a big car chase, his car gets all wrecked, and he's on the verge of going over a cliff with a woman in a wedding dress. I guess if nothing else, it's an anecdote, you know? Now, this being Lupin III, he's not exactly a stranger to dealing with femme fatales and pretty women, you know, like the woman of the week and all that stuff. But it seems to me that this film sort of uh, toned down some of that, some of his more lecherous behavior. Granted, most of uh, that is usually reserved for Fujiko at any rate. You know, it's almost weird to see Lupin being... I don't know, more gentlemanly. So it's not like he's not a gentleman, but at the same time, he's kind of, uh, kind of skeevy about it. Now, I forget what episode it was of Lupin the Third Part 2, but there was a scene where he sort of, like, fell almost exactly like this. Where the thing his grappling hook was attached to broke, and he landed, like, right on his tailbone, and then sort of collapsed. I'm wondering which came first. If this film came first and the episode referenced it, or if this is a callback to one of the episodes. I only bring it up because it was almost like one for one. You know, I think he was even sort of like attaching his grappling hook to like a tree root like he had done. Well, despite that uh, rather heroic car chase and saving this woman, it seems to have all come to naught. Her pursuers have not just a car, but a steamship as well, and, uh... You know, running on foot from a steamship, I guess, is good if you're running inland, but, uh... Given that they're in, what, the, the Duchy of Cagliostro in... 
Presumably Eastern Europe somewhere. I don't know. So now the plot's thickening. Lupin has managed to accidentally secure this uh, nifty-looking ring. He seems to know what it's all about, and he's not telling Jigen. Now, Jigen, of the pair of them, is sort of like the more cynical, pragmatic guy. So, that he's not being told what's going on, I'd imagine would kind of rub him the wrong way. So I guess, understandably, Jigen's none too impressed with his old, burned-out castle. Aside from the fact that the crest on the castle and the crest on the ring are one and the same. You know... I think it's a pretty fair statement that if I were in Jigen's shoes, I'd be asking a lot of pointed questions about... Why, precisely, Lupin seems to be so familiar with everything here. You know, what's the deal? What's the significance of the crest? So the plot thickens a little bit. This palace, now in ruins, had formerly belonged to the Grand Duke. You know, that's rather unfortunate. A fire that killed the Grand Duke and Duchess and has since been left to ruin. I mean, even if government does persist after that, that's no reason to let the castle fall to ruin. That seems like an awfully wasteful kind of thing to do, especially in, well, Europe, where you have this amazing cultural heritage of all these ancient castles. No, if nothing else, I think you should try and preserve them a bit. I mean, I say all that, but I'm fairly certain Cagliostro is fictional. Normally, in Lupin the Third, they go to uh, real places and usually steal real things. You know, I'm pretty sure he's stolen the Mona Lisa at least once. And, you know, they go to Italy, France, all the usual places. But uh, Cagliostro, I don't believe, is a real place. Earlier, Lupin dropped a little bit of exposition saying that it's, what, like the smallest member of the European... Or no, the, uh, the United Nations, and it's got a population of 3,500. You know, that's like... That's not very big. That's That could all be one city, and a small city at that. But for its size, it seems to have a rather nice, uh, rather nice amount of scenery. Now, it's a very scenic place. There's nice, uh, I don't know what you'd call them, lakes, oceans, the sea, mountains in the distance. Now, at this point, I think it would be uh, rather important to mention that Lupin's gang is at this point incomplete. Because normally, 
Lupin is accompanied by both Jigen and Goemon. Goemon, of course, being a samurai. And, I mean, Fujiko sort of hangs out with them, too, when she's not in the midst of betraying them, but, uh... For the purposes of this, I wouldn't really count her. Because, you know, normally when Lupin does stuff, he does it with both Jigen and Goemon, and... They have, on occasion, all sort of, like, butted heads with each other. Them each having their own sort of slightly different moral compass, but... I don't see what they would be doing in Cagliostro that would have rubbed Goemon the wrong way. And I don't think it's really something that's explained either, I think it's just sort of like... Uh, Goemon didn't feel like, uh... Taking part in the casino heist, and therefore when they decided to head to Cagliostro, he didn't really, uh catch up with them immediately. So the plot is thickening a little bit more. It seems that based on the way Lupin's talking, he tried to break into Cagliostro prior to, I guess, partnering up with Jigen and Goemon. I mean, the chronology isn't exactly clear to me because I'm still relatively new to Lupin as a whole, but it seems like this is like a, a bit of a stain on his record, as it were, because Lupin is usually successful or manages to uh, make it a draw, I guess, for want of a better term. For him to be completely shut out is almost unheard of as far as I know. So I think one of the ways that you can tell this is really a Miyazaki film is that you have an interesting flying contraption. It's called a gyrocopter, and I don't know if that's, um... If that has any basis in reality, but... It definitely has a, uh, a bit of a distinctive Miyazaki style to it, in that... Well, it doesn't really look like anything... Real, you know, it... It looks fantastical, but somewhat plausible. You know, it looks like something like that could actually fly based on what I know of how helicopters work. But it doesn't really look like any helicopter that does exist. At least, none that I'm aware of. By this point, I think it should be pretty clear that the Count here is definitely the villain. This mysterious woman seems to have been kidnapped on his orders. Although, uh... It seems he's been played for a fool. He has a ring of his own, and the fact that she no longer has hers is... For reasons unknown, bad for him. 
So it seems like whatever mess Lupin has sort of uh, intertwined himself in, uh, it's only going to get worse from here considering that he is now in possession of the ring. I mean, obviously he has his own agenda. He wants to learn about those goat bills, see what's going on, maybe, uh... Maybe get some real money, but, uh... As of right now, that ring is a little bit more interesting. Alright, so the plot's thickening a little bit more. The ring belongs to Lady Clarice, presumably the daughter of the late Duke and Duchess. Yeah, so things are getting interesting. She's marrying the Count. Uh, that guy who was in the foreground seems to have been listening in, so... Uh, Things are getting interesting. You know, Lupin is prying into the affairs of this country, and I can only assume that the powers that be are none too happy about that, especially given his reputation as, well, essentially a master thief. So the plot's starting to get really thick here, too. You know, obviously Lupin and Jigen are aware that they're being stalked, and they've decided that melee combat is the appropriate solution here. I mean, far be it for me to suggest otherwise, but Jigen being the marksman that he is, I feel like uh, shooting them would just be better. You know, I do find it remarkable that these henchmen are so easily able to fend off an old axe and a morning star, because, like, the idea of a morning star is that you're supposed to be able to hurt someone even if they are wearing armor, just through blunt force alone. This is one of my favorite scenes too, the sort of like chase over the rooftop and then trying to get away. It's just, it, it's a whole mix of elements here, like the, the muted color palette showing that it's like nighttime. The fact that he sort of has to like scrape him off the car and how the car is becoming increasingly battered. It's just a whole host of things, all these little details that I think really make the film great. 
Like, it's just that little scene where, you know, Jigen beats the dude over the head with a wrench and Lupin has to pry off the claws from the side of the car. So this is the second time we've seen this, uh, this lady here. And now she's doing some snooping around. So I think it's only fair to say she is going to be somewhat important later on. She seems to have a keen interest in the goat bills here. And that uh, their quality is slipping due to an intense production schedule. Oh, looks like Lupin pulled his old trick and sort of, uh, made a fool of someone. So, you know, despite ostensibly offering a threat to the Count, the Count's in pretty high spirits about it, because, you know, Lupin has the other ring. If he's ever going to get it back, he needs to get it from Lupin. That really led the sense that the ring is a lot more important than Lupin is perhaps giving it credit for. And at long last, Goyamon has finally decided to show up by means of a horse-drawn carriage. Now this is a side of things we don't really see in that Lupin and company have to be like camped out in uncomfortable conditions. They're sort of eating like instant ramen and all that stuff like. I mean it's not like they have a permanent base of operations but normally they're in more hospitable conditions than this. Now, no episode of Lupin the Third would be complete without Inspector Zenigata. He's probably my favorite character, thinking about it. He's just an Interpol agent who, for one reason or another, has been assigned to capture Lupin. And that's what he intends to do. Albeit, without much luck. You know, he's managed to clap Lupin in handcuffs a couple of times, but... You know, it's never really a permanent deal. Now this is interesting. Uh, the, the Count actually refers to Lupin by his heritage. You know, the grandson of that French thief, Arsène Lupin. And, you know, that's actually kind of an interesting story. Because there's a French writer, uh, Maurice Leblanc, I believe, who wrote a couple novels or novellas and short stories about, well, the uh, the gentleman thief, Arsène Lupin. And, 
Monkey Punch, the author behind the Lupin the Third manga, I guess saw that, you know, this was something he could expand on. And, you know, maybe write about his grandson stealing stuff in modern day. If I recall correctly, the original Arsene Lupin was sort of a, uh, a peer of Sherlock Holmes in that they were both written and sort of took place in the same time period. So unfortunately for Zenigata, he's sort of meant opposition with the Count. You know, the Count is adamant that his own men can take care of this business, and he really doesn't want the inspector snooping around too much. This sort of captain of the guards here is indicating that there's all sorts of booby traps, and uh, they do not discriminate against whoever's trespassing, so, you know... Even if you're an Interpol inspector, you will in all likelihood die and uh, no one will miss you. So, Zenigata being the good cop he is, knows that you wouldn't have such tight security unless you weren't also hiding something. So, the plot gets a little bit thicker. You know, Lupin, in a bit of a twist, has actually sent for Zenigata himself. You know, to sort of pressure the Count, add an element of chaos. I don't think this is the first time that Lupin has actually pulled this gambit where he's sort of tipped off Zenigata to come harass people. But, it's definitely a novel change of pace. You know, normally Zenigata is just doggedly pursuing Lupin or happens to stumble into him by mere happenstance. You know, fortunately, Zenigata is usually good enough to go along with the plan, albeit unwittingly, just sort of distracting all involved in allowing Lupin to get away with whatever he's doing. Now, I do believe that this is sort of like new ground in Lupin the Third too. I can't recall them ever sort of using scuba equipment to sort of infiltrate a palace in this manner. I mean, there have been instances where they've had to do like underwater shenanigans, like Lupin had to fake his own death so he pretended to be shot and fall into the sea. But... You know, that had to look authentic, therefore he wouldn't be wearing scuba gear like he is now. Man, I really can't say I envy him. You know, I like swimming as much as the next guy, but being underwater for long periods of time is something that makes me very nervous. You know, I, uh... I have to say, I'm rather attached to breathing, and I'd like to continue doing it indefinitely.
So life just sort of goes on in the palace, you know, nobody is really any the wiser that Lupin has infiltrated the palace. I feel for Zenigata here a little bit, you know, he's in the same sort of boat, where he's camped outside eating instant ramen while the Duke and his guests, or the Count rather, are dining on exquisite food. I mean, I guess some of this is the station of Zenigata, you know, he's he's working, he doesn't have time for such niceties because he's busy trying to catch a thief. And you know what? His instincts were good, that water tower sort of behaving weirdly is indicative of something going on. And if he were, you know, maybe a little quicker on the draw, he could have uh, seen Lupin. Here we go. So Lupin is planning ahead, it would seem. You know, Zenigata, at the behest of uh, Interpol by means of the Count, is being recalled, you know. Zenigata is not a guy who's willing to give up easily. You know, he's normally very steadfast in his pursuit of Lupin and some hoity-toity Count telling him to stop nosing around is not something that's going to stop him without some, uh... some pretty severe convincing. So this is where the genius of Lupin comes into play. You know, being a master of disguise, he's decided he's going to stir the pot. You know, despite that being actually Zenigata before, he's mixing in a little bit of uh, hysteria and personal insults in to sort of uh, trick the royal guard into uh, mistaking Zenigata for Lupin. You know, this isn't the first time that Lupin has sort of disguised himself as Zenigata, but I think, from what I can remember, this has been the most effective instance. You know, I don't recall another time when he's basically caused an all-out brawl. Now this is another very interesting scene. I know it's been parodied many times before where this sort of like statue booby trap that like opens this pitfall and then uh, disgorges a Polaroid of the victim. So many people have done homage to it by, you know, including like a similar sort of scene. 
I might be mistaken, but I'm pretty sure Yu Yu Hakusho had something similar to that. You know, it's rather unfortunate that they decided it was safe to disable the booby trap. You know, they're dealing with Lupin here, they have to bring their A-game. So, the way the two of them are sort of worried about this whole business, it seems to me that the booby trap is, uh, rather dangerous. I mean, the butlers made it out more or less unscathed, but... The Count doesn't seem too concerned about letting Zenigata out of there, wherever he's been dropped. Man, that, that really is a scummy thing he said, you know, people go missing all the time. You know, just tell him he departed. So here we go, you know, Lupin can't help himself, he has to play a little bit of a practical joke. And... We also have confirmation that this woman is none other than Fujiko, who works with and occasionally against Lupin. Now, normally, or at least in all the depictions I have seen of her, aside from the castle of Cagliostro, she's been a brunette rather than a blonde. Or rather, brunette, or like, maybe sort of like straddling the line between brunette and redhead, but never blonde, so I'm wondering... What precisely the impetus was behind this decision? You know, is, is it just a case of Miyazaki prefers blondes, or... Is Fujiko, like, actually dyeing her hair as part of the disguise here? You know, that's something that, as far as I know, has never really been made clear. And, truth be told, it's probably not a big deal. It's just, um... It's just something I noticed, and something I'm curious about, because, you know... Like, she's not bad as a blonde, she's sort of like that stereotypical femme fatale kind of a character, so being blonde certainly works. Yeah, I'm wondering if it was just like a whim that made her blonde, because there were a couple episodes of Lupin the Third Part 2 that Miyazaki directed where she is a brunette, and in like the, the first part of the anime even, which Miyazaki, I believe, co-directed for half of it, give or take. Yeah, there, there's been a bit of a production kerfuffle way back when. Um, she was brunette in all of those. You know, I think this might be a mystery I might have to dig into, if for no other reason than to satisfy my own curiosity. Now, I have to say, to do what he's doing, Lupin is a far braver man than I. You know, being essentially perched up on this incredibly steep roof. And it seems like he's preparing to... 
well, launch a zipline over, but, you know, the best laid plans of mice and men, he's now gonna have to free jump it. I mean, I guess he gets a running start, so good for him, but... Man, sure got some impressive distance. Hope he can climb up that sheer wall. I mean, if nothing else, this displays rather impressive grip strength that he's able to support the full weight of his body with one hand just with his fingertips. I mean, I guess that he was able to get out of this really gives credence to the idea that he is a master thief and can get out of basically any kind of a jam. You know, he wouldn't have survived so long if he couldn't do that, I guess. Now I feel like this scene is kind of incongruous. I don't know. Like, I feel like Lupin's playing up the gentleman routine a little bit too much. You know, I don't think it's necessarily true to his character. Like, the sort of, um... The jovial attitude he has, sure, but like... I don't know, the gentlemanly aspect, maybe not so much. Like, I don't think it's out of character that he's willing to help Clarice, but... Yeah, like, it, it's this speech here. Like, I feel like Lupin would more realistically try and, uh... Try and haggle for treasure or something like that. Like, you know, surely this ancient European country would have some you know, important gold or crown jewel or something like that. You know, I have to say, I really do like the soundtrack in this film. It's... Most of the time it's pretty, uh... Pretty understated and just sort of like lingers in the background, but I do think it's very soothing.
I mean, I guess Lupin's just sort of like playing up this good-natured persona to try and like help out Clarice a little bit, you know? The idea is she's like, what, barely 18? She's just left the convent off to be married? I mean, it seems like all of this is now for naught, you know? The Count's men were just sort of lying in wait watching this whole exchange. So I do find it nice that Lupin, despite being held at, uh, effectively knife point, you know, he's still sort of, um, putting up a tough front. Unfortunately, he seems to have played into the Count's hands by turning over the ring. So Lupin is right in that he's difficult to dispose of, but I don't think he's quite aware of the true depths that the Count is willing to stoop to. You know, he just sort of dropped Zenigata into a pit, and presumably he's going to die down there if no one lets him out. So it would seem as though that Lupin has been sentenced to the same fate as Zenigata. The Count even says it himself, you know, the fall could very well kill him, but if it doesn't, then uh, enjoy being stuck down there and dying of thirst or hunger or, you know, exposure for all we know. Definitely not a good way to die. So I guess if nothing else... You know, if all works out well, Lupin and Zenigata could team up, considering that neither one of them is the bigger threat here. I mean, Zenigata is usually pragmatic enough to team up with Lupin if something worse is going on. Albeit usually with the provision that as soon as this is over, he's going to slap the cuffs on Lupin. And Lupin, knowing this, naturally agrees to it and reneges almost instantly, as soon as everything is resolved. So the plot's getting a little bit thicker here. The Count is making it clear that his sort of branch of the family has always been involved in black ops and things like that. Political killings, assassinations, stuff like that. And it seems to me that he feels because his family has done this that he deserves... I guess ownership of the family. You know, he needs to be in charge now because he's earned it. So it would seem that perhaps when Lupin was tinkering around with that chemistry set earlier, perhaps he was forging a little counterfeit ring. You know, I guess good enough to fool the Count without closer inspection, so props to Lupin for that. 
So I guess the ball's back in Lupin's court now. You know, he has some leverage. If he has the ring, that means the Count needs him. I mean, that's not to say the Count necessarily needs him alive. But if nothing else, you know, he's going to have to send people down there to recover the ring. Man, Count's not playing around. He's going to make her look at a skin corpse. What a lovely guy, huh? So considering how far down Lupin has had to unspool his little grappling hook here, it seems pretty darn likely that the fall would have killed him if he hadn't arrested it. So that really has to make you wonder, how's Zenny got to do it? You know, this is probably like the most graphic thing I've ever seen in relation to Lupin III, considering that there are all these moldering corpses. A lot of them rather old, having been reduced to just skeletons. So I'm trying to think, like, even in the uh, the anime, even when people get shot, there isn't really, like, bullet holes or blood or anything. Man. That's rather dark, having people etch their final words into the stone wall of this catacomb. And, you know... That guy, a Japanese spy, according to his epitaph, decided that uh, suicide was the more honorable thing to do rather than sit and waste away. Now this is a nice little moment here. You know, considering how frequently Lupin clowns on him, Zenigata assumes that he's just sort of in control of the situation. That Lupin doesn't know of a way out is uh, rather unfortunate for Zenigata. So, uh, astute as always, Zenigata has deduced that there's something going on here, and the presence of Lupin and Fujiko merely confirms that. But considering that they're both stuck in these catacombs, the only prudent thing to do is to join forces for the time being. Man, you know, 
Jigen and Goemon kind of have the raw end of this deal in a way. You know, they're just sort of like sitting, watching, waiting to see what's going on. I mean, at least Lupin has something productive he can be doing. You know, namely finding a way out of these catacombs. You know, I find it interesting that the Count's soldiers have specialized uniforms for regular assassination and aquatic assassination. I mean, I guess if you have to, like, go into the catacombs and sort things out yourself, you know, it might pay to have specialized equipment for it. I mean, I get it was part of, like, their ambush, but I feel like Lupin was a little too, uh... Too eager to snuggle up with a bunch of old bones like that. Because, you know, who knows how long they were lying in wait. Certainly wouldn't be a comfortable endeavor, that's for sure. And you know, I'd almost think that, like, going for a little swim would make things better, but I can't imagine this water is much cleaner. <laughs> Oops, pulled a fast one on him. Yeah, you guys can kind of uh, chill out there. So they've gotten away cleanly, you know, they got out of the catacombs. Anyone who knows is now locked down there too. They just have to sort of sneak out unnoticed and they're in the clear. I mean, word will get out eventually that Lupin has escaped, but, you know, if he's meaning to get away, now's a good time. So it would seem as though that this right here is Zinigata's big break. There is all sorts of hard evidence here that the Count of Cagliostro is counterfeiting all sorts of everything. You know, I can only imagine that all these stacks are, you know, hundreds of thousands of basically every currency. I also find it interesting that they mentioned, uh... What was it? West German Deutschmarks? Because, you know, this film was made during the Cold War, essentially, so East Germany and West Germany were considered two separate countries. Like, I only bring that up because I wasn't alive for that. I believe Germany was reunited before I was born. Yeah, it's just an interesting thing, because Germany's always been one entity in my mind. But, you know, there is, what, a period of... Uh, some 60 years or so, 50 or 60 years, where it was two countries, nominally. Oh, here we go, here's the official truce. You know, now that Lupin has sort of shown him that, hey... You know, Kaliostra's up to some bad stuff. Now they have to form, like, an actual truce, you know. 
don't don't arrest me now you know you can arrest me once we finish all this wink wink nudge nudge Now, I find it interesting that Clarice knows Fujiko by name. So I feel like if she was posing as a servant, she would at least use a pen name. Or, well, not a pen name, a false name, rather. So, you know, in the balance of things, it seems like Fujiko is, uh, at worst neutral to Lupin in what he's doing here. You know, she mentions that we work together and against each other and all that, and that's certainly true. I think she conveniently leaves out that she's betrayed him, like, more times than I can count on both hands. But, uh, at the very least, she seems to be working on the level now. So Lupin's got uh, a really good sense for how to cause a stir here. You know, he's decided to set fire to the printing press room. And considering that's how they make their money, both literally and figuratively, um, you know, there really could be no better distraction. Unfortunately for Zenigata, Lupin has decided to torch the place before he's acquired sufficient evidence of what's going on. You know, what that evidence would be, who really knows, like maybe printing plates or something like that. Because, you know, just grabbing the counterfeit money alone, I don't think would prove anything. It's not like the printing plates themselves would prove it necessarily either, because you need to have something that ties it to the Count and his cohorts. But I suppose if nothing else, you know, it's provided ample distraction to let them get out of here. Now this is a scene I like, you know, just sort of them grappling on the stairway, running up the stairs. You sort of get a view of them scrambling up the staircase while Johto's in the elevator watching them. And just like the way they sort of like stumble and run around each other. I don't know, it just strikes me as very real. You know, I, I don't know how to describe it. Like it... It's real in the sense that real people, like, trip and stumble too under duress, especially if you're running up an old stone staircase. So I think this is where things are getting a little too complex, maybe. Lupin has made the executive decision that they're going to save Clarice rather than regroup and come back later. And I guess that makes sense. You know, if they give the Count time to prepare then he'll certainly do so, and that will be to their detriment. So they better make hay while the sun shines. Unfortunately, it seems that her window is strong enough to withstand the grenade. 
So, you know, this old tower is uh, really rather heavily fortified. Ah, uh, Lupin, ever impetuous, you know. Hey, Zenigata, can you take the wheel? And, you know, he doesn't even wait for an answer. You know, I guess it's nice that Fujiko is actually helping out, if only because she's sort of implicated in this whole mess, too. It's rather fortunate she came armed with all those grenades and automatic weapons. Yeah, you know, I really question the judgment of someone who would leave a helicopter in the hands of somebody who doesn't know how to fly it. You know, as I understand things, helicopters are rather fiddly things to fly. You know, at least with a plane. A plane will glide if it's not under power. Uh, a helicopter won't. Now this is rather not good, considering Lupin's been shot through the torso. This is like the first time that I can recall having watched the anime where he's sort of like been injured and there's been blood shown because you know there's been occasions where he gets like scuffed up but never quite to this degree Man, it really seems like nobody's playing around anymore. Clarice is willing to die, the Count is willing to kill her. And, I mean, Lupin doesn't have much say in the matter, he's just sort of lying there bleeding. You know, I'd imagine taking a bullet to the back like that uh, has to hurt a fair bit, especially seeing as how it sort of went through the center. You know, that's like vital internal organ territory. So Fujiko spills the beans about him hiding stuff under his collar. As far as I've seen, you know, this is really the only time he's ever done anything like that. So it, it might have just been something made up, but... It's interesting. You know, there's been a lot of aspects of this film that sort of, um... Borrows or calls back to the anime. And... Vice versa, I suppose, with newer instances of the anime. Well, through luck or good judgment, Zenigata has managed to sort of uh, show up in the nick of time. You know, I have to question her wisdom, but I can't fault her devotion for being willing to jump on the barrel of a machine gun like that. You know, those barrels get hot. The, uh, all those holes are basically to vent, uh... 
well, maybe not vent, but uh, I guess to allow for cooling, I'm given to understand. Because, you know, when the barrel heats up, it tends to warp and misshape, and that's, uh, that's not good for accuracy or precision. So, you know, you want it to remain as cool as possible. But to be willing to jump on basically like a piece of burning metal like that, you know, that's, uh... That's pretty painful. And they just kind of unceremoniously dump Lupin in the car like that. I feel like they could be treating him a little better considering he's just suffered a gunshot wound. So here's the issue. Zenigata has the proof. He has the count dead to rights. But Interpol seems unwilling to do anything. You know, they claim that it's a big political, I guess, problem. You know, it could cause an incident. But, you know, like... Even if it will cause problems, is it right to do nothing when bad things are going on? So it seems like part of the issue here is that nobody's really innocent. You know, all these countries are sort of contracting with the count to get counterfeit money. I can't help but feel a little bit bad for Zenigata, because he really just does want to do what's right, but Interpol's not willing to support him or sanction him. You know, it really is rare to see a demoralized Zenigata. The only instances I can think of where he's been demoralized like this are episodes in which Lupin has faked his death, and, you know, Zenigata's like, oh man, so many years of my life wasted, Lupin's dead, I didn't get to arrest him. Or, like, an episode where Zenigata was sort of, like, given a small romantic interest and she ended up dying. And even then, he wasn't, like, truly demoralized. It was more like, you know, boy, this is sad. But then... You know, he was eventually fine to track down Lupin again and continue the chase. So the plot's getting real thick again. You know, Lupin is clearly addled by his injuries, but he seems to know the dog. 
As fate would have it, the dog belongs to Clarice, and he seems to have met the dog, you know, some years ago, as he alluded to. So despite his injuries, Lupin is willing to power through it. You know, he's going to eat a rather unsettling amount of food to try and recover from his injuries. And, you know, once that's done, they've got a wedding to crash. You know, we can't just let Clarice marry the Count. So, you know, everybody's sort of hypothesizing about why everything is like it is. You know, Lupin now is well enough to tell the story. So it seems like, based on the way he's telling the story, that him trying to break into Cagliostro the first time was sort of like a first adventure of sorts. You know, a trying... Or a testing ground, rather. You know, he decided to investigate the goat bills, figure out all that, and he got himself very nearly killed. You know, fortunately for Lupin, Clarice is such a gentle soul that she was willing to you know, tend to him and help him even though he was ostensibly an intruder on palace grounds. So in a weird sort of way, this is like the conclusion of his first big failure. I mean, like, he says to himself that he'd sort of forgotten all this stuff until he came by. But... And even now, Fujiko's still helping out a little bit, you know. This archbishop will be arriving, Lupin, you know, wouldn't that be a nice person to impersonate? You 
You know what? Fujiko is doing the Lord's work here. She's helping Lupin. She's lighting a fire under Zenigata saying, you know, Lupin's definitely going to crash the wedding. Your superiors couldn't be mad at you if you went after Lupin and not the Count, right? And, you know, she is right. It really is nice that she's sort of like pulling everything together when things are sort of at their darkest. So it seems that the Archbishop has taken the wrong route to get to the wedding. And it just so happens that this, uh, this friendly sheep farmer knows a, uh, a secret shortcut. You know, surely this could not go poorly for the bishop. I think Zenigata and his men deserve a lot of credit for all the stuff they have to go through. I mean, they've been dealing with combative guards and the landscape. You know, for once I think Gustav here is right. Bringing a TV crew in is probably not a great idea. Especially considering that the reporter is Fujiko. So, you know, we can already tell a little bit. The driver is definitely Jigen now, rather than the guy from before. The Archbishop is in all likelihood Lupin, because, you know, who else would it be? Lupin himself being a master of disguise. So it seems like all the pieces are slowly falling into place here. So now things are really starting to reach the end game here. You know, the wedding procession is approaching, and... You know, it looks kind of not good, you know, with the, uh, the robes and the pointed hoods and all. Granted, historically it has different connotations than it does in the United States, but... Um, I think most telling of everything that's going on is how utterly catatonic Clarice looks. You know, especially in comparison to how she looked before and how the Count looks. You know, that one shot of her face, it was very clear there was like no, no light behind her eyes. Like, the lights were on but nobody's home. And, like, even the way she moves is kind of, like, stilted and ponderous.
You know, I find it very interesting that they're not using, like, a wedding march or anything like you would normally expect to find in a wedding, but perhaps it's a cultural thing that I'm not really aware of. You know, I'd imagine... It might be a particular piece to Cagliostro that they would play at weddings. I mean, who's to say, really? So, the Archbishop here is playing a bit of a game. You know, he wants essentially proof that they are, in fact royal members of the House of Cagliostro, so, you know, the rings need to be there. It's very interesting that the bishop here says silence will be considered as consent to the union. The idea being that you know, it's a given they can get married, and if you don't want that to happen, you have to speak up and say so. Considering that Clarice is not really herself right now, it, uh, it seems to be working in the Count's favor. So I think this is where Lupin's flair for the dramatic really comes into good effect. Because, you know, he did that whole speech before in front of Clarice, and that was just sort of like so-so in my opinion. But this is really nice. You know, he is appearing as a specter lit by candlelight. You know, Jigen and Goemon are acting as pallbearers, essentially. There's, like, a little touch here in that Jigen has, you know, fangs, as if to imply a demonic nature here. It also helps that Lupin is talking with a rather, uh, a rather spooky voice to try and imply sinister intentions. Now, as it would turn out, this is just the sort of thing that Zenigata needs to barge in there. You know, I find it notable that nobody noticed the lack of blood. You know, they just sort of impaled Lupin on a bunch of swords and, like, he didn't so much as, well, grunt or anything, despite being stabbed. You know, it's not the only time that Lupin has faked his death using a body double, but... This is the only time I can think of where it was actually, like, a complex bit of machinery rather than just, well, like, a dummy. So, you know, despite essentially uh, getting his own way now, Lupin is still in a rather bad position, surrounded by people with swords. 
I mean, I guess the fireworks make for a good distraction, but... You know, I think he should be making his way towards an exit in a rather timely fashion if he wants to get out of here alive for good. So everybody's sort of doing their part in this plan here. Lupin has rescued Clarice and he's trying to make good on his escape. Fujiko's broadcasting all the chaos while simultaneously fighting off the Count's men. You know, she really is an intrepid reporter, or at least she pretends to be. And so now Zenigata is charging in under the pretense of finding Lupin. But, you know, he's obviously going to, uh... Trains strong-arm Interpol into investigating the Count, you know. Surely Lupin is down this staircase that leads into this printing room that I knew nothing about. Teehee. Man, I feel like this went from, like, a solemn broadcast into gonzo journalism real quick. You know, Fujiko's following him with a handheld camera just to figure things out, and Zenigat is playing it up. Ah, uh, he's such a hammy actor. You know, I think the voice delivery really sells it that, you know, Zenigat is trying to play things up for the camera. Man, you know, I'd imagine that caused some friction around the water cooler at Interpol, but you can't really dispute that Zenigata did the right thing. So, you know, despite being a more Lupin-centric story, it's nice that Clarice is taking the time to acknowledge Goemon and Jigen for their role in helping things, even if they're only sort of, uh, serving to allow Lupin to escape. So even despite all of this, you know, the broadcast, Lupin humiliating him in front of the entire congregation, the Count is unwilling to give up, so it really seems to me that whatever treasure he's after is, uh, pretty monumental, especially if he's willing to kill for it.
So it seems like this tower is the nexus of everything. You know, this is the key to the treasure. Those two rings sort of slot in there. And, uh, well, I guess at this point it's just a matter of getting to it and securing the treasure before the Count can intervene and steal it for himself. Seems to me that uh, maybe Lupin made a bit of a mistake by running this way rather than somewhere safe. You know, the internal mechanisms of a clock tower seem rather hostile to human anatomy, if I'm any judge. Oh dear. So, you know, Lupin's in a bad way here. His, uh, his trusty sidearm has been melted into slag. He's effectively being cornered by the Count's men in this clock tower. You know, things aren't good. And, you know, he also has to contend with the fact that he's sort of uh, guarding Clarice. You know, she's definitely not a combatant. You know, if anything, she's an extra burden to him in this instance. And this is another one of those really iconic scenes where Lupin has to sort of climb through the mechanisms of the clock. Ah, man. That's exactly what I would be afraid of, getting caught between the giant cogs and being crushed. I'm sure that's an absolutely horrible way to go. I mean, I guess good thing is just some nameless henchman that nobody really cares about. So Lupin's got a pretty good idea here. You know, they can't follow us up the clock tower if I uh, break bits of it. And I mean, he is right, but... I don't know. I don't think I would have the confidence to start breaking bits of the clock tower when I'm also inside of it. I mean, structurally it might still be sound, but I'm not going to mess around with gears and stuff like that. So this really is a very interesting fight scene in terms of choreography. You know, obviously they're sort of sword fighting, sword on wrench at least, but they have to contend with the fact that the ground is moving beneath them. You know, I like the little bits of animation where the Count was sort of jumping between two gears, rotating in different directions, and he sort of, like, wobbles a bit, you know, showing the shift in momentum. I think the animators had a very good idea for what would actually happen. You know, momentum has to be conserved as per the laws of physics, so, you know, working in a clock tower, there's all sorts of angular momentum going on. It would be interesting if nothing else, you know. You have to have a good understanding of how things move to accurately depict something like this. 
And for what it's worth, I think they've done a superlative job. So at this point, the Count is sort of showing his true colors here. I mean, we've known it all along that he is definitely not a good guy. But if, you know, Clarice has nothing left to bargain with, then he's more than willing to just kill her for the sake of it. I mean, good on Lupin for bargaining on her behalf. You know, you can have the rings, I'll even tell you how to access the treasure, just, you know, spare her. I mean, he makes a compelling argument, you know, everybody's sort of standing on the hands of a clock here. It's uh, rather precarious. I mean, I can't say I would ever find myself in this circumstance where I'd be willing to, you know, kill someone just for some treasure, but if I were the Count, I would certainly take Lupin up on this. Of course, at the same time, Lupin being a thief and, you know, frequently a liar, he's not exactly trustworthy. I mean, in this instance, I think it's safe to say he would be, but the Count certainly isn't. Seems to me that uh, maybe the Count was a bit rash there firing off all those projectiles at once when one or two would have done. It seems like he's uh, thrown away his last uh, ace up his sleeve as it were. So I guess, if nothing else, you know, this is an acceptable ending. Lupin and Clarice have gotten away, you know, reasonably intact. Bullet hole and a couple kicks to the head notwithstanding. I guess the only real downside is that now the Count gets the treasure. But, you know, having to climb across a clock face to get to it... I mean, from my perspective, being someone who doesn't like heights, I'd say this certainly isn't worth it. So there we have it. The treasure is now being revealed, and I like how it's sort of um, like a secret mechanism in the clock tower that's causing this to happen. I mean, perhaps it's a bit of an oversight, you know, if you're going to be on the uh, the clock face while this whole thing's rumbling, it's uh, maybe not good. And uh, probably wasn't a good idea to just sort of like stand there as the hands were moving together. You know, probably like jumping into the water below might have been better at that point, but considering what a villain the Count was, this is probably the best outcome. 
I mean, it's certainly no less than he deserves to get sort of squished between two giant wrought iron clock hands like that. Wow, so that mechanism was really something. You know, it collapsed the clock tower, part of the aqueduct. Definitely took the count with it. The real question, though, is, uh... How's Lupin and Clarice, you know? Are they still alright, considering all the debris that's falling into the water all around them? I find it interesting that nobody really knows what's going on here. You know, it seems to have uh, unblocked a dam which is causing the water to rise around the castle. I mean, if you're right on the shore, this is definitely no good. You're, you're going to be contending with uh, a flooded house for sure. You know, I have to say, if there's one thing I really don't like about this movie, it's that, having gained an appreciation for other bits of Lupin III, it's that we really didn't see enough of Goemon. You know, he does have, like, a sort of dry sense of humor, and, um, considering how little we saw of him, it's a shame there wasn't more of that. I mean, I guess that's really just, like, a little quibble. I really do enjoy the Castle of Cagliostro. It's just a... I don't... I'd call it, like, a quintessential adventure film. So here's the treasure. If I'm any judge, I'd say it would be an ancient Roman city. You know, there's all sorts of architecture, the pillars and all that. And it seemed to have just been under the lake. You know, why no one knew it was there is a bit beyond me. So it's interesting that the treasure would be an ancient city that everyone just sort of forgot about. I guess it's kind of unfortunate for Lupin in that, you know, you can't exactly take an ancient Roman city with you when you go to commit your next crime. I mean, in a sense, it's good that there was no monetary treasure because all of the stuff Lupin did is now purely good and not tainted by the fact that he also stole something. I mean, it's not like he's a hero by any means, but he's definitely willing to do good things.
So this is something that doesn't really get touched on in this film, but Lupin really only has eyes for Fujiko. And despite Clarice sort of throwing herself at him, you know, he's not willing to sort of drag her along into his thieving ways. And, you know, the way he sort of talks about it, it's more like, you know, you don't want to be a thief. It's definitely not a good life for a good person like you. But he sort of conveniently leaves out that Fujiko is really the only woman he cares about. I mean, maybe that's harsh, but, you know... I don't know, I think uh, Lupin's coming from a good place here. You know, he's not willing to implicate her in his crimes. She is... I believe uh, you'd call her the Duchess now, considering uh, the Count is now dead. And her parents are dead, and her parents were the former Duke and Duchess. You know, you can't just take the only ruler of the country with you. Especially if you're going to be a criminal. So, you know, I have to wonder here. I feel like Zenigata was uh, a little late deliberately. You know. He's sort of, um... Well, he's definitely honorable. But he's sort of saying here that, you know, Lupin is a thief and this time he stole your heart. I mean, he didn't steal anything. In Cagliostro. Like, he didn't really commit any crimes. I mean, I'm sure he did, but, you know, the Count was also evil too. So I feel like Zenigat has just given him a break and he's merely chasing after Lupin. Because that's his job and because he has to account for his previous crimes, you know. Even if he's innocent in this instance, Zenigata can't entirely give up the chase, you know. So there we have it. In the end, uh, Fujiko managed to steal all the printing plates and leaves Lupin in the dust. So, you know, even if she didn't really betray him, she definitely made out with something and Lupin is left with naught but Zenigata in hot pursuit. So, you know, in a way, this is sort of a return to the status quo. You know, Lupin and the gang are going back to... Uh, committing more standard crimes and evading Zenigata as they jet-set around Europe.
Alright, well that's it for this episode. If you've enjoyed it, then by all means, tune in for the next one. See you, Space Cowboy.